welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Uh, we welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Dion, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live, and we'll do our best to answer them. Uh, our Disrupt TV regular weekly co-host, Ray Wong, is in the air right now, and uh, so please allow me to introduce our guest co-host for episode 166. Dion Hinchcliffe is an expert in information technology, business strategy, and next generation enterprise. Dion is currently vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research, as well as chief strategy officer at Seven Summits. A veteran of enterprise IT, Dion has been working for more than two decades with leading edge methods to bridge the widening gap between business and technology. He works in the trenches with Fortune 1000 companies, government institutions, internet startup community, and more. He's a regular contributor to ZDNet. Often you see me sharing his incredible wisdom and his uh, second to none graphics that help us better understand uh, his philosophy and thesis. He's a sought after keynote speaker, co-author of several uh, books, including a bestseller, uh, Social Business by Design, which is a must read. He's also an amazing follow on Twitter at D-H-I-N-C-H-C-L-I-F-F-E. Welcome back, Dion, to uh, Disrupt TV. Thanks, Fala. It's always great to be here. Looking forward to the show today. Thank you so much. Well, it's our pleasure to kick off the show, episode 166, with John Del Santo, Senior Managing Director and Head of Accenture U.S. West Region. Accenture's West Region is home to major hubs for innovation, including the San Francisco Innovation Hub, Accenture Labs, Liquid Studios, and Ford Digital Studios. Located in the global center of digital innovation, John works with clients to build technologies that are transforming the way we work and live. He's responsible for bringing innovation to clients, enabling for them to drive business acceleration and digital transformation. He's also super passionate about attracting top talent and strengthening the impact of Accenture and its local community. Certainly at Salesforce, Accenture is our biggest and, and best partner. John serves on Accenture's North America Leadership Team and its Global Leadership Council, providing input into the company's overall strategic vision. If you want to learn more about Accenture, you can follow Accenture on Twitter at Accenture, A-C-C-N-T-U-R-E. Welcome, John, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vala. Uh, happy Friday. Happy Fleet Week Friday. <laughs> By the way, if, if, uh, we have some Blue Angel sound in the background. I'm in the Salesforce Tower right now, so all right, <laughs> I'll, I'll be, won't be too disruptive. You're truly in the clouds. You're in the clouds. <laughs> Terrific. Terrific. Well, thanks for having me. This, uh, this will be fun today. Um, we will talk about uh, all the disruptions that are happening around here, but also happening, happening throughout the business world uh, with, with technology. We look forward mostly, to as it affects our workforces. Terrific, terrific. Diane, please start. Uh, so I, you have a, a new report that's uh, come out, uh, John, and, and um, you know, the talk of the day still these days about artificial intelligence and automation. Um, but uh, you identified some, uh, some significant uh, skill shortages and gaps. And, and you know, one of the things I, I was curious about, we've been automating our organizations for years, and now AI has you know, been a thing for almost five years in the industry. Why is it critical for, uh, for organizations to address this skill gap? And uh, why are companies still struggling to find the right talent to get this done? Well, I mean, there's, there's many aspects of what you just asked, but I, I think 
automation has been happening. I mean, I've been in this business uh, at Accenture for more than 30 years. And obviously, we're in the business of automating and help uh, companies be a lot more efficient. But definitely artificial intelligence is, is um, changing the game a bit. Uh, there are skill gaps all over the U.S. At all, you know, our unemployment's at all-time low. And I think the, the need for certain types of skills is in massive demand. And then there's these different metro areas in the U.S. And definitely in the, in the West Coast, we live in, in a few of them, uh, where there's just a massive shortage uh, of, of talent. And so um, technology's had part of it, a lot to do with that. I think there'll be a trend over the next few years where automation, fueled by AI, machine learning, and other technologies will obviously step that up. But it, it's really, it'll be, it'll be in, increasingly important for companies to figure out what they need to be really, really good at, what they need to automate, what they need to collaborate on, and where to get skills from. The traditional sources of um, recruiting and, and finding talent has definitely changed. Sure. In your uh, report, you interviewed 250 Bay Area executives from large, medium, and small organizations, and seven out of 10 said that hiring the right talent continues to be very challenging for them. So as we talk about um, augmented intelligence with the benefits of machine learning and AI, do you think, or what was the sentiment of these 250 executives in terms of can they leverage technology to help reduce that challenge in terms of finding the right fit, not just competence, but also the character of the candidates? Um, I, I suspect that emerging technologies like machine learning, looking at unstructured data like your digital footprint and social footprint can help companies um, measure the trustability of the candidate and whether it's a good fit for the company culture based on tone, sentiment, and other activities that are very prevalent uh, to us in terms of the digital footprint and the digital exhaust that we leave behind as we live in this uh, you know, uh, hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously we've been using those technologies for many years and our clients have been using it for many years to, to really identify skills. Um, we've moved from, you know, just focusing on skills to really focusing on behaviors. Mm -hmm. So you're, you know, because clearly what we want are knowledge workers that are deeply skilled in something, but frankly have the right kind of behaviors that they can pivot to new things over time. Mm -hmm. um, because in the, in, you know, sort of the, the new workforce, the future is going to be a workforce that's going to change. It's, you know, you're not going to be in a function forever or a specialty forever. Uh, you're going to be constantly asked to change your role, change your competency. And frankly, as we know, I think that the millennial workforce and that's uh, in the next generation of, of um, knowledge workers who are going to want to do different things. They're not going to want to be pigeonholed into one role and they want to be a lot more, um, you have a lot more options in their career. And I think employers are going to want, you know, a lot more talent that's flexible, that's want, you know, that wants to learn. So behaviors is really, really critical. So the social, um, uh, learning and, and sensing that you just referred to is important, but I think actually understanding what is motivating the human being that you're hiring is yeah. critical um, because if it's about change and collaboration, some companies will find that very, very attractive. Um, if it's about a specialty skill, um, they may find that very, very attractive as well. But I know in our own company, we've really started to pivot from just hiring for skills and, and certain competencies to hiring for a fully rounded person that's looking looking for a variety of roles, that's okay with ambiguity, that wants to continuously learn, um, and that understands and embraces the fact that technology is gonna change their job every few years. Yeah, I know exactly, and, and so, so John, let's, uh, let's focus uh, in on the human dimension of this conversation. We, you know, we, um, we see that 
uh, more and more work is getting uh, automated, that, that AI is at least going to augment the work that we do, and that we're even encouraging workers to, to use uh, AI-based tools in their everyday jobs uh, and automate more and more what they do. And there's robotic process automation and, and uh, this making it ever easier to, to replace workers even. Um, and, and then the concern is, of course, that uh, for many of these, many of these workers, uh, the ones that are being replaced are often doing um, a, a, a rote work that's uh, going to be difficult for them to transition to, into the kind of higher level knowledge jobs that are going to be left. What do we do about this? What does all of this mean for the human worker? How are we going to adapt this? Because it's going to be a disruptive change. I, I believe this is going to be happening quicker than some believe. I think you're definitely right. And I, I think, um, you know, the HR officer of most big companies, most of our big clients, they're sort of on notice, right? I mean, they, they need to really come up with a strategy for, strategy for what you do with the talent that is augmented or supported by bots and other technologies that automate a lot of the work that they may do. Um, you know, we think actually, we also are looking for workers that are going to be very comfortable working with automated worker, automated work and that sort of thing and with bots. Uh, we, we envision teams, including not just humans, but non-human workers. Um, and, and, but I do, do think the HR function, as it traditionally has been laid out in most companies, is going to radically change over the next few years because the HR officer is really going to be much more of a strategic partner who's looking at the different types of skills uh, that are out there in a given economy for a certain job, where to find them. Um, where, where a career goes and how to flex careers, um, both uh, in certain functions and across functions. So I, I, I do think there'll, there'll be automation of jobs for sure. We already see that obviously. Um, and there will be less and less knowledge worker jobs as people promote into it. But I think there are people who need to be able to pivot their career quickly and, and being able to reskill talent in, at a pace um, is, is gonna be really, really critical. You know, the old fashioned sort of- I think going, we're gonna need reskilling programs. We're gonna need to do a lot more work to help people make this transition, I think. Absolutely, and, and, and not, not just traditional certifications and certain technologies, but reskilling uh, by on the job training and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's why I go back to, you know, when they're hiring to bring in talent, it's gotta be people that are sort of have the aptitude to wanna, wanna learn stuff constantly and have a, a real appetite for learning. Sure, sure. Uh, in the last uh, year, uh, when people ask me to recommend books written on the topic of AI and future of work, there are two books that I recommend. One is Dr. Kaifu Lee, AI Superpowers, where he describes the future of work and white collar, blue collar jobs impacted by automation and AI. And the second is by Accenture's uh, Chief Technology Information Officer, Paul Daugherty, who wrote Human Plus Machine, where Paul um, references use cases in terms of use of AI across various industries and, and, and the notion that in the future you have people and machines working together to co-create value, but yet your 250 uh, executive uh, survey of the Bay Area, only one in four said they're ready uh, or feel prepared for these impending changes due to technologies like AI. So what advice do you have for CHROs or business leaders in terms of improving that one, one in four to hopefully where all of them are somewhat comfortable with, with these changes we're talking about. Well, I, I, Paul's book is a great book and it goes into to great detail, I think, around the um, importance of, of human and uh, non-human work and, and working in teams uh, with bots and the like. Um, you know, the, the, the bottom line is we work on a lot of digital transformations for clients here in the Bay Area and a lot of those executives that were pulled um, have seen some of these digital transformation programs as really technology projects. Um, and when you don't pull in 
human element to a technology project, and we this has been the, you know true for a long time, you, you could really really minimize the value of the technology that you've implemented. Um, it's even I would say even more pronounced and, and um, uh, important now with the with the with the automation of a lot of tasks you know, and, and with machine learning and, and bots being able to do a lot more human act, humans human like activity um, and support a lot more human activity. So, you know. A technology implementation that includes, um, you know, any enterprise software that has a bunch of artificial intelligence and machine learning has to come with a major HR and human transformation at a company. It has to, to really, it really will force those one in four to, to get ready and to really rethink their workforce, rethink how they're organized, rethink the kind of skills that they need. Um, I think the days of sort of the very functionally siloed company, depending on what industry it is, are, are going to morph massively. And it's because of these technologies and frankly, because of the workforce that, that we're getting um, and, and the aptitude of that workforce to do a lot of different things. So I, I, like I said before, I think the, the HR function is a little bit unnoticed because it's gonna have to, those one and four are gonna have to, to, to adapt quickly because these technologies will, be, um, will not drive tons of value without uh, a massive workforce transformation. Totally agree, totally agree. Yeah, exactly right. And, and so John, uh, walk us through the art of the possible here. I think people keep hearing about there's going to be a lot of changes, that things are going to be automated, that knowledge workers are going to be living in a, almost a nirvana. They can focus on, on, their, on, their, on, the, on the pure concepts of their job as opposed to all the hard work uh, that it takes just to, just to get started. Um, can you paint us a picture? What is the future of work going to look like in the next five or ten years? What sort of things are we going to see out there? Well, I think you're going to see, um, you know, a lot more uh, flexible workforces. You'll see more of the gig economy being plugged into certain business functions. A lot more collaboration across entity. Um, but for the worker itself, so workers going to have to know multiple things. Going to have to be very comfortable with technology and very comfortable working with other partners and collaborators outside their enterprise or or outside their industry. Um, and so I, I think you're going to get a uh, you know a, a real a real diversity of skills that come into an organization and that have to be able to do different things. Um, and I, th I think people's career paths will be shortened. You know, they will, you'll be in a certain function for a period of time and you will either out of personal preference or out of need for, for that business pivot to a different function altogether. We, we see it all the time in Silicon Valley. It'll be less role-based and more, more project-based, right? More outcome-based, I think. Definitely. And I think, um, like I was going to say, the, when, in Silicon Valley, you've seen a lot of engineers, you know, um, that are running marketing or running sales or running, you know, or an executive uh, of, of a different function and a lot of pivot that happens between functions. Um, so that, that definitely will happen. And that, you're absolutely right. More project-based sort of orientation where you're on a gig for a few years doing a project and you may continue with that enterprise or not, depending on what your interest is or what your skill set is and how much retraining you need for, for the role. So I think there'll, there'll be definitely a lot more change as it relates to, to professions, um, you know, throughout a variety of industries. You talked about diverse talent base. Uh, where do these folks come from? Um, will it be universities? Will it be startup accelerators, uh, communities? At my company, we started a free online uh, competency-based education program called Trailhead, which was gamified so that you can earn badges as you learn. And in three years, you have uh, 16 million badges and now 1.2 million active learners, not just employees and customers, but anyone who's interested in understanding sales, services, marketing, CRM. So we're now attracting a diverse talent pool 
based on making our curriculum available uh, and accessible at no cost. Do companies need to create, uh, inventive, invent creative ways to, to connect with talent? And will it always be technical talent? I feel like there's no better time than liberal arts majors who think about design thinking and low friction and, 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 and flow into business where they can put the art and the science and the science into art, whether you're marketing or sales or service. So I think it's not just the folks that can code, but people that care and are passionate about serving stakeholders who are gonna have great opportunities to grow their careers. Can you give us advice like Accenture, amazing company, where do you get your talent uh, and, and how do you make sure it's diverse? Yeah, you, you definitely hit on a lot of topics here that are good. I mean, one of my one of the best bosses I've ever had at Accenture over the years was a, um, a technically brilliant uh, woman who um, who was a French major. <laughs> so, I love that. <laughs> she was technically more stupid than just about anybody I ever met, um, and, and, and absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, the, the skills will come out of university across the patch, I think for sure. But you, you touch on something that's even more important, I think, which is putting real teams together. And that's how I think about it to the, to the point where you're talking about Diane. Um, when you're putting, fielding a team for a project, you got to take skills from lots of different places, depending on what the role is at that point in time. And so when we bring skills in our organization, we see our clients doing this as well. We're looking for, we're, we're not just looking for traditional sources, you know, off of off the university campus and a certain major that fits a certain profile. We do that, but we, we more and more, we're also finding um, talent in, in, in a lot of variety of, of um, venues. And we've got a, a new, relatively new in the last couple of years, apprentice network. So we'll bring in people even without college degrees, we think have the behaviors and the competency to want to learn and do the kind of technology work that we do or the kind of project-based work that we do. And they may not have any technical background. Uh, they may have only a year or two of junior college, but they have the kind of competency that can plug into sort of our business model and, and learn. And so we really are looking for that ability to learn, that aptitude to change and, and, and to learn new things. I think every company is going to have to, to, to do this, not just because they want diverse workforces, but there's such a shortage of talent that they're going to need to find another way to bring talent into the firm or the company and, and get it up to speed. And so I think apprentices are a great, a great example of that. Recruiting more from junior colleges, maybe they don't have a four-year four degree is a great example of that, or technical schools for certain skills. Um, and then, you know, continuing to, 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 to partner with companies that actually are selling, you know, project-based skills in, in the gig economy is, is, another, is another source. I think being really flexible on the sources of talent and how you feel that team is going to be critical. Sage advice. I agree. Diane, yes. question. Yeah. So, uh, so John, uh, you know, your organization is on the front uh, line for a lot of these things. You're working with both with emerging technologies and a lot of really interesting companies all around the world. Can you walk us through um, how you're uh, collaborating with clients to to make some of these things happen? What, what you know, give us kind of some vignettes of what this looks like. Yeah, we um, it comes in lots of different flavors depending on the industry. I mean, I love the reason I love the job here in the West Coast and the Bay Area, especially, is that just about every industry is represented out here, and and to some degree at scale. So we, we get lots of exposure to different things. But you know, we're we're working with a couple of the utilities out here to figure out how to to not just automate service, but to automate service and have it be cross-functional to improve you know their sales as well, um, and frankly, put bots in place that are that are that are learning. And not only learning from the company, but learning from the customer about how to serve them better and that sort of thing. 
and augmenting the job that a you know more senior level customer service representative would have. Um, so we've done been doing a lot of projects around customer care and service, a lot of projects around sort of finance, automating certain finance jobs internally. The traditional big enterprise that has you know hundreds in some cases, some cases thousands of, of different roles in finance. A lot of those can be automated given the technology evolution over the last few years. And then when you when you talk about how to automate um, collections through you know machine learning and other automation technologies, we've seen massive gains for some of our uh, software clients and and products clients out here for you know automating certain functions within a billing and collections. Um, so you know all of that comes with like I said before, you know a, a change to the to the organization because they no longer have to think about the organization just as the headcount that is reporting into the function but the headcount and the number of sort of automation, you know, the bots or whatever that, that we've implemented. And, the, and, and really ultimately what that's gonna go to is there's gonna be a team, both automated and non-automated of work that's happening in these functions. And we're seeing that in just about every industry here in the West. That's incredible. We're here with John Del Santo, Senior Managing Director and Head of Accenture's US West region. Accenture publishes incredible thought leadership content. I encourage you to follow them on Twitter at Accenture to learn more about future of work and impact of AI. John, you were terrific. Thank you very much for being on Disrupt TV. No, no problem. Thanks, guys. Have a great Thanks, day. Have a good weekend. Thanks, John. Yeah, this is a 400,000-person organization, and they're doing incredible work, and companies are relying on Accenture to transform themselves. And as John said, as much as we talk about technology, it's about culture, it's about talent, it's about change management processes, and you have to have a sense of urgency uh, in order to, to, to stay relevant. And speaking of urgency and relevance and really investing in best and brightest. We're here with Laura Dryan, Managing Director at Silicon Valley Data Capital. Laura uh, uh, is uh, 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 Managing uh, Director at Silicon Valley Data Capital, a seed and early stage venture capital firm that focuses on next generation enterprise technologies. Before SVDC, Laura was Managing Director and Head of Innovation at the West Coast for Royal Bank of Canada, responsible for driving the bank's digital transformation. Prior to that, Laura was the founding partner of GMB Partners, an investment advisory firm focused on technology companies. Laura has led many investment and served on numerous boards of directors and advisory board. She was named one of Silicon Valley investors you need to know by Inc. Magazine. She was named to the 200 thought leaders in crypto and blockchain by Medium and one of the innovators to watch, 44 executives shaping the future of banking by Bank Innovation, of course, Constellations, Business Transformation 150. I had to reduce her bio because we only have 20 minutes on our show. You can follow, <laughs> you can follow Laura on Twitter on Investing Mom, I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-G-M-O-M. Welcome, Laura, to the show. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, welcome, Laura. Uh, so glad that you could join us. Um, so you've had an amazing career. I've uh, done so many things. Uh, I've been all over uh, the many sides of the startup equation. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Silicon Valley Data Capital does? That data word is, sounds so interesting. And why did you come back to the venture capital world uh, after being such a, a fintech pioneer? Uh, sure. So um, Silicon Valley Data Capital uh, is uh, yeah, uh, indeed a seed and early stage venture fund, um, $60 million, and focuses on next generation enterprise um, technology and fintech. Uh, data is my partner. Jim McLean is um, someone I was excited to have the opportunity to work with. He's someone I've known, liked, and respected for um, 15 years. Um, so when he asked if I'd be interested in working with him at SVDC, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, 
I think what makes us a little bit different from a lot of the funds that do seed is because Jim has been in venture for over 20 years and really has um, uh, focused on using a seed program as a way to identify work with companies over a longer period of time, but also reserve and potentially lead Series A and continue to be able to follow on in investments like a traditional um, venture fund. And with a, a narrower focus, we're not doing, although we'll do fintech, we're not doing consumer, um, et cetera. And given what I've been doing at RBC for the last three and a half years, you know, driving a successful digital transformation, um, I have a pretty good understanding of how enterprises buy technology, um, which as actually oddly um, something that most venture funds don't bring to the party, as you guys probably know. Um, so, uh, and for me, it's an opportunity to go back to working with, you know, startups and technology companies. I think part of my um, background that um, you shortened out, which I think is really also relevant, is that I shipped 12 products while I was a product manager at Silicon Graphics. So I've done everything from, you know, MRDs, PRDs, and have really walked in the shoes of building new product and have a passion for, for that. That's awesome. And, and, and so your background in large companies helps you advise startup founders in terms of how they can sell to large companies, um, which as a former CMO and CCO of a large company, I found that very few startup leaders spoke the language, understood the complexity, uh, not just with implementation, but adoption and, and some of the cultural elements of bringing startup technologies into an enterprise. Can you talk about your experience in terms of do startups generally have success selling into the enterprise? And if, if no, what are you doing to help them uh, better position themselves? So I've had this conversation with, you know, previously some of my peers at some very large financial institutions and, and legacy companies. And we we all sort of concurred privately, but like startups have no idea how to sell to us, right? So, and, and sort of why is that and what does that mean? Well, you know, from, it's not surprising, right? I mean, companies are started by brilliant engineers with a brilliant technical vision. Um, and often the best ones, of course, have validated this and understand, you know, from a customer perspective, but there is a natural tendency to lead with the tech and how how wonderful the tech is. And the biggest challenge, my partner Jim's probably tired of hearing me say this, the biggest, the hardest thing is if you think about, you know, so you're trying to sell to an enterprise and maybe you have somebody who's your first contact, they probably aren't necessarily the buyer, but I can't tell you how many startups would send me, you know, something really great, you know, worse, they go, oh, look at my website, forget it, that's never gonna happen. You know, send me the frigging data sheet or something that I can you know, forward to people. I'm not taking a step to go to your website. Um, silly, but true. Um, but also don't make me the author, make me the editor. And the big challenge is somebody will send me some big thing, here's you know, the stuff the product does, here's the vision. But I can't, it, it, never mind me, like my job was to help drive these things. For the average um, uh, professional you're sending this, selling this to in a big company, that is not their job, right? So, and you don't make it real to them, put them in a story. It doesn't, I don't need people think, oh, I have to have a reference customer with their name attached. I don't need to know that it's Citibank, call it Acme Bank. 
but set, make it a story where I can see myself, I can understand the use case, because then I don't have to be that smart to understand where the tech fits, how it applies to me. And so this notion of making the people who you're selling to the editor is really, really important. And most tech companies really make us be the author, and that is a recipe for very, very long sales cycles if you get it done at all. Yeah, well, that, that's the real challenge. I, I, mean, I, I've, uh, I work with a lot of CIOs, and, and they love working with emerging tech companies, and they go, in, they go to the valley, they visit all the startups and, and you know, all the cool kids, and they try to absorb all that innovation. But it really comes down to it when these startups try to sell something for, that, that's not on the edge of the organization, but is really core to what the business does. The CIO gets nervous because yes, the sir. issue is you know, they're going to bet the business on it. And you're going to say, we're going to run a core a key part of our business using this new product from a little company that may not be around in two years. Uh, how do you get past that? I mean, that's, that, that's one of the big challenges. And I think that's, that's changing kind of the startup landscape too uh, a lot. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, look, I think it's you have to be of some size before you sell to a, an enormous legacy company, you know, $110 billion financial institution or, or what have you, because you're absolutely right. No CIO is going to risk, you know, a core piece of technology on a company that's, you know, five people, et cetera. I think, you know, you have to get early customers who aren't necessarily the largest enterprises and not necessarily in, you know, in something that its core, can you prove what you do in something that is either a smaller but reputable company, whether it's, you know, a Silicon Valley company or, you know, something that's more used to adopting technologies and start to build those use cases and funding so that, an, you know, and that a CIO, you don't have to be public, but the CIO goes, hey, I'm not taking startup risk on your company, right? Um, I think those well, to, to that end, are, are these startups getting too much money? Is that one of the big trends that everyone wants them to get big fast, and that lets them sell to the enterprise, hit their annual, you know, their ARR number that everyone wants. Uh, you know, we look at what we work and uh, what happened to them. What you know, what what's happening out there? Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, so the answer is yes. Startups are raising too much money. Um, it's very bewildering to me to hear. Um, startup CEOs, founders celebrating a huge fundraise. Oh, we raised $100 million. We raised $80 million. And it's like, that's great. And that's actually not the end goal, right? The end goal isn't to raise 80 million bucks or, you know, pick your number. The end goal is to have a successful outcome for the founders and the investors, which means getting the return on that 100 million, right? And um, look, I, I love Reed. But I don't think blitzscaling is a great thing, right? I actually think trying to, you know, and I think building a brick at a time, while I understand is quaint and I know growth matters, but getting a return on capital is, is really critical for everybody, including the founders who sit on, you know, under an overhang of capital, right? So I don't know. I think it's a question of, do you think you can, you know, wisely use the capital you're raising? That's great. Yeah. Um, so my company is very active in terms of investing in startups. I think we're only behind uh, Google Ventures and Intel Capital in terms of CVC activity. So 300 plus startups in our portfolio. And I think we're at a cadence of investing in a new startup once a week. So uh, again, you know, it's super active. Um, we also will walk away from deals based on the personality of the management team and founders. Uh, of course. So, it's, so I want you to give advice to startup founders and entrepreneurs that are watching in terms of what are the characteristics that you look for 
and you're making early bets. So I'm, I'm sure the team is a very big part of that equation. Do we invest? Um, what do you look for? What turns you off in the first meeting? Certainly pointing to a website is one of them. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but I, I have seen us walk away from companies where I felt the technology was terrific, but the team was not, and we, we, we didn't make the bet. So, so it, for us, it's a huge part of the equation. And I want you to give advice to entrepreneurs who are watching so that they can have that successful first meeting, first pitch, and hopefully a, a relationship that's, that's fruitful for all. So somebody much smarter and a better investor than probably everybody is Warren Buffett, right? And he said when he hires people, he looks for sort of three characteristics. One, you want them to be very smart so that they do, you know, intelligent things. Two, you want them to be hardworking so they do a lot of them. And three, you want them to be ethical because if you have the first two and not the last, they will rob you blind. Awesome. So, um, I, you know, <laughs> that, is, that is great advice. You're right? right. And so, um, not mine, you know, somebody else's words, but, um, I think that's true. Right. And, um, you know, you, when you do diligence on, on founders, um, you know, if there are, I don't know, um, you, you have to understand that people are going to do a ton of diligence on you, hopefully, if they're doing their job. It, you know, maybe they're going to go to GitHub and understand your tech cred. Maybe they're going to go to your professors if you're a new grad, you know, whatever. It, you know, hopefully people are, are, are doing some homework. Um, the ethical side is, is harder. Um, people don't tend to want to say bad things about people. Um, but if you have, you know, and, and by the way, there are things that you don't have to be ashamed of. Um, you know, I have a friend who was starting a company who'd had a, you know, was being diligenced by a VC who um, knew the venture capitalist at his prior company, that company hadn't done well. And I said, look, you need to get ahead of that issue. So if there is something that you are concerned about, embarrassed about, whatever, I always think it's better to be, a, a, you, I, I belie my uh, BA in, university, in econ from the University of Chicago. I assume markets are efficient. So I think entrepreneurs are, are, would be well advised to do the same. So get ahead of it. If there is bad news in your background, for whatever, however you want to constitute that, hey, you know, the following happened. You should know, blah, 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 blah. You might want to know that this guy isn't going to say good things about me. Here's why. Because when you when you don't do those things, um, that's when people sort of say, hey, this doesn't feel right. I don't want to work with this person, et cetera. Um, other things, you know, the quality of your references. I've had, um, mm -hmm. I recently had a founder give me references from the his co-founder of his previous company, but not the investors in that company. That's a red flag for me. I kind of go, what are you hiding? And trying to prevent, you know, the investors aren't stupid, right? And so you should, that should be your, you know, we aren't necessarily as smart as the founders, but we've done this a lot. We've probably vetted hundreds, if not thousands of companies. And so, you know, assume we'll figure it out. So figure out, you know, give reasonable references, you know, be um, open about these things. Those are some of the feelings I, I, I have about I that it. topic. I love it. So you're saying radical transparency, be graceful, yeah. And just, you know, no element of surprise and uh, remove any friction that may exist because you just didn't feel like being completely um, transparent. No, I, wouldn't wanna, I don't want to say honest. Sometimes maybe yeah. they, they leave data points behind and it's unintentional. But radical transparency, I love that. I think that makes total sense. Look, in the age of LinkedIn, it was a really different thing before LinkedIn. But now, you know, you can pretty much, oh, this person knows that, you know, you ought to, you know. Yeah. By the way, the same is true. A piece of advice I tell 
you know, founders, as I said, you should do diligence on us because, you know, you marry your investor and you are every bit as entitled to figure out who you're taking money from as we are and investing in you. And I think that's not only fair game, I think it's smart. It's actually a good thing for everybody, uh, you know, we, with today's ability to get information and look things up and check people's uh, uh, credentials, uh, you know, don't, you don't need to hide anything. It's all going to come out anyway. So, exactly. uh, so looking a little bit more forward, you know, so yeah, we have, we have generations of, of, of startups that, 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 that come and go. Uh, if we're looking at the next wave of startups with your extensive presence in the, in the VC community, uh, you know, what would you say are the characteristics required for success uh, in the near future? What, what, what do startups need to focus on? I, you know, great question. I think, um, so one thing that I think is important, you know, I have a little company, uh, you know, I, I've seen this a lot. Sometimes you'll see the um, seed companies have just closed. Uh, they raise some capital and all of a sudden um, a bunch of later stage VCs call. And they're like, oh my God, you know, you know, Sequoia called or Kleiner called and whatever else. And, and they want to take these meetings because it's flattering. They kind of go, this is really great. Focus on the business, right? So if you just raise your $2 million seed, it's amazing because that used to be a series A, but, um, you know, if you just closed your seed, focus on, you know, typically in a, in a, in a good pitch, it's not, you know, one thing entrepreneurs often do is they focus on how far something gets you in terms of length of time. But of course the venture capitalists are really focused on how's the next guy after me going to pay two X what I paid. Right. And what are the metrics you need to get to, to do that? Focus on, executing on those because if your business is going well you will get those subsequent calls from brand venture firm x or y but don't take those fundraising you know you think they're fundraising meetings when you've just closed an a round so and i mean i hate to say that because that sounds so basic but like i'm seeing that quite a bit and it's actually right. really important like focus on building your business right right so, uh Sorry. Uh, my final question to you. Um, do you have to be in Silicon Valley to be successful? How, where is your, you know, how, how, how much do you look outside of the Valley to find, uh, you know, great opportunities to invest? Um, we have an, an investment in Chicago. I mean, I think that you don't have to be necessarily in the Valley. I think it's seed. It's hard for us because we like to be value added. And if you're helping recruit to the team or whatever, right. like, I don't have, I mean, unfortunately, venture capital is a local business, right? When people have said, oh, I you know, have a company in Boston, they need to hire X. I have no Rolodex to help you find a VP of marketing in Boston. So if you're doing seed, like typically doing it close to home is, yeah. is, is, is I think, good wisdom. Um, if it's A and you've got a team that's already executing and doesn't need that kind of help, I, you know, I think that's, that's fine. And I don't think you necessarily need to be in Silicon Valley. I do think Silicon Valley does benefit yeah. from a very long history. So, you know, starting with chips to networking, to, you know, systems to, you know, whatever, as a result, if you need a VP of marketing who yeah. really understands, you know, CRM, it's a whole lot easier to find it here than it is in Denver. It doesn't mean there aren't good companies in Denver, right. but the talent bench here for the executive roles you need to fill is likely uh, deeper and wider. Absolutely, the network I mean, is spreading out. Yeah, you see Austin, I even see Portugal, yep. UK, ever seen startups in more places than ever before. 
Yeah, no, I mean, especially New York. I mean, it used to be you'd say it was only ad tech, but now there's a ton of fintech, right? Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a super healthy, healthy fintech. I mean, the, actually, some of the best fintech companies in the last five years have come out of London. So um, I don't know how that'll be post-Brexit, but, you know, I, I think that uh, there are a lot of hubs of some really great companies. I, I wouldn't be able to invest in a startup in London, but. <laughs> All right. That's terrific. Uh, Laura Durian, Managing Director at Silicon Valley Data Capital. You can follow Laura on Twitter at InvestingMom. Thank you so much for being on Disrupt TV. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great weekend. Have Cheers. A great weekend. Terrific. That was some incredible sage advice to entrepreneurs. Yes, absolutely. Uh, do, do due diligence, bi-directional, radical transparency. Uh, you know, stop celebrating, you know, uh, adding to your <laughs> debt and focus on the company. And that's right. Raise the right amount of money, not as much as you can, right? That's right. That's right. And, uh, and, and keep your focus on the finish line, which is building mm -hmm. great products and services and actually adding value to... to Making people. customers happy. I, exactly. Do that and everything else solves itself. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Okay, so our final guest is sure to be a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to the shop. Uh, he's Ron Miller, enterprise technology reporter at TechCrunch. Uh, Ron has been covering the technology landscape for over two decades. Uh, uh, prior to TechCrunch, he was contributing editor to eContent Magazine, and he is a fantastic follow, super active on Twitter, which I love, at Ron underscore Miller. Welcome uh, back to Disrupt TV, Ron. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure to be here. So before Dion gets into uh, you know the nitty gritty of tech trends and industry disruption, uh -huh. these uh, we have breaking news that I want to share. Uh, the Patriots are six and zero. Oh. Yep, that's right. <laughs> of course, they haven't played anybody. That's really. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask you. I keep reminding my nine-year-old son that all their victories have been at the expense of teams that have a losing record with yeah. the exception of the Bills, which gave right. them a great, great game. So let's, let's not celebrate an 18 and 0 uh, or 19 and 0 season before we, uh, before we see uh, the, the second half of the schedule. But your thoughts on the, and I know Dion's dying to hear this, your thoughts on the Patriots <laughs> and how far you think this team's going to go. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I know though, you know, they'll, they'll probably get too deep into the playoffs as they usually do, but they're going to need to get some healthy bodies on the offense, I think, to make that happen. Unless it's like a case like the, uh, you know, the, the 2000 Ravens, where you just had this killer defense, which they do have, although they haven't been tested yet. Um, and you, and you get by on that. Um, this is not a show about sports. <laughs> I actually want to address something that, that Laura said, you know, and, and that I, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I cover enterprise startups and I, I think I'm more, more optimistic than kind of what she, she pointed out. Um, we did a panel last week at TechCrunch Disrupt on how to build a billion dollar enterprise startup. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, obviously work and uh, execution that has to go into that. And, and, you're right. You know, you can't be celebrating your your uh, your fundraising because that's just the start of things. But you know, we talked about like some of the kinds of things that it, it takes to build a successful startup. Of course, you got to have a product market fit, and that's the first thing that you have to kind of establish, right? You start to establish product market fit. You find that repeatable story is what what um you know one venture capitalist called it. He said you have to find that when you talk to customers, they have a repeatable pain point. 
right? And if you continually find that pain point and your project is addressing that pain point and nobody else is doing an adequate job of doing that, regardless of whether they're established or not, then the fact that you're a startup, yeah, the CIO may be reluctant, but the CIO is gonna to have to listen because this is a problem that they have and this problem is being solved by this company. Yeah, if they can't solve, they might take the risk. I mean, uh, I do notice that one of, the, one of the aspects of a successful enterprise startup tends to be having a, at least a founder who came from the enterprise and felt some pain point. They say, why couldn't I, why was there no product or service that would solve this very painful problem for us? Absolutely. And, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, so that, that seems to really be a success factor. Uh, and yeah, if there isn't anything out there, you have a much better chance of, of getting into the enterprise. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, what I've, what I've found is, you know, I continually find myself writing in, you know, early stage startup stories is they couldn't find a product that did it. So like any good startup founder, they built it. And it was exactly what you said, Dion. I mean, that is a consistent kind of story across the startup landscape. Right. Nobody's trying to invent something that's already been invented. Because one of the things that, um, that, that came up last week was, you know, it's generally a winner-take-all landscape, right, yeah. out there. And if you're number one, you're going to, you know, you, you have to get to market early and you have to execute well, but you can't, like, come in and try and create something that's already been created and expect you're going to make a lot of money because you're not yeah, it's hard to, in, a, in a SaaS world it, where there's network effect it's hard to push out the, the incumbent unless they've done something wrong or they've sat on their laurels and and they, they're leaving white space then there's i think there's room to do something yeah your your your, your panel was uh was was exceptional and the person that talked about use case uh repeatable pattern was niraj agarwal about that's correct Battery Ventures in Boston. I had yeah. the privilege of meeting with him, and uh, you know he's consistently on the Forbes Midas Touch. I think it was number six last year. So he has a track record of decades of making big bets and big companies with big returns. So right. he's uh, so congrats on getting him on your panel. Yeah, it was a good panel. I also had Jody Benzel of yeah. uh, you know Harness, who also yeah. was a founder at AppDynamics, which sold to Cisco for three point seven billion, yes. and I had. Uh, I had Whitney Bauk from, who's the CEO at HelloSign, um, who just sold a company to, uh, yeah. to Dropbox for, for 325 million. So, and she's, she of course worked at Box before that and yes. um, documented before that. So, so they, you know, really if, you went to a, if you went to a pre-panel prep lunch, somebody there picked up the tab because yes, you had very successful people. <laughs> <laughs> we did not, but I, I, I would have kept that in mind if you... <laughs> But, but before Diane asks you a question, talk about uh, TechCrunch Disrupt. For our audience who may not be aware, tell us what it is. And then, and I think most of us know what it is uh, because it's, it's, it's a gathering of some- Oh, it's at it's it's the pace for the industry for a decade, absolutely. Exactly, so, uh, but, and then your, 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 um, your big takeaways, your aha moments, who, who, who really surprised you with what they said and what you saw, you know, the, the memorable uh, uh, moments of this year's uh, Disrupt. Well, you know, it's 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 a it's a really interesting show, and I think that you know, it's it's easy for me to say that this was the best disrupt ever, but I think it really was the best disrupt ever. Um, you know, we had this we had this kind of three track system, or even four actually, but one was called the extra crunch stage, and I don't know if you guys know our our 
subscription product is called Extra Crunch, and it really dives into like a lot of things we, we were just talking about, yeah. uh, you know, like kind of getting under the hood of the stuff that goes on in Silicon Valley. And I've certainly learned a lot as I write the stories for Extra Crunch because, um, you know, prior to that, my writing was mostly about the check. You know, you got the check, but I didn't have a huge understanding of what happened before the check, you know, and I only had a, I had, I had a moderate understanding of what happened after the check, you know, when I talked to them about the next check. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I knew what was going on, but I've learned quite a bit. And, you know, that's the thing about any kind of business that you're in. The more you learn, the more you know there is to learn. So we had this special stage that was devoted to kind of the extra crunch ethos. And it was all how-tos, you know, and there were all these, like mine was how to build a billion dollar SaaS company, but they were like how to hire people and how to get your first check and, you know, how to, uh, you know, just just all kinds of things. We had uh, Ray Bridgewater on that stage. Yours was, market, market fit, yours was market fit and how to get early revenue, right? Those are the two things you're talking about? Well, no, well, I mean, we talked about a, a bunch of different factors around that idea of building a billion dollar SaaS company and you know if they, obviously there's no magic formula for doing that or it would be done all the time and there are a lot of good companies who are 400 million 500 million 600 million they have nothing to be you know apologizing for um, so you know there's there's levels of success so I, I, if I had to rename it again I would probably call it how to build a successful um, you know SaaS company so and then on the main stage you know we had some some you know, movers and shakers like, you know, Will Smith, who we just, and the director, uh, Ann Wang, who created the movie Gemini Man, and, um, you know, uh, who, who uh, is using this, this new technique to create this younger kind of version of Will Smith, who comes after Will Smith and yeah, yeah, tries yeah. to kill him. It's a, it's a really, uh, you know, cool concept, but having Will Smith on the stage, and he's a really funny, engaging, and charming guy, um, was was pretty fun and you know there was just like so many people from you know the the uh the the industry uh you know from from venture capitalists to to founders you know Evan Spiegel was there from from and 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 uh, uh you know uh I mean I'm, I'm blanking on, on yeah, names now Mark Benioff I thought yeah, Benioff was there of course talking about you know how to build a responsible company yeah and and so there, there was there were just so many um, interesting people. And then we had the you know the startup alley where a lot of you know startups could show up their wares. And we had a Q and A stage where people could come and actually ask the people who were on the other stages questions directly. Yeah. So um, there was it was just a very quality, comprehensive kind of show. Anything yeah. surprise you? Anything surprise you? Any 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 surprises for them this year? I mean, you know, like there's so much content going on there. Like it's impossible for me to keep track of everything. And especially when I have all my responsibilities that I have to do. Yeah, right, right. But, but I mean, I can't think of anything that particularly surprised yeah. me per se, but I think that things went, you know, remarkably smoothly for a big show like that, that last three yeah. days. And, um, you know, we covered a lot of ground. We did, we did, congrats, great show, great show. All right, Ron, so let's, uh, let's get right to it. Um, big news of the week. <laughs> CEO of SAP, Bill McDermott, is out. He is. Yeah, so that was kind of shocking. I mean, yesterday I was eating my dinner and I, I actually, I got a uh, message from Brent Leary, 
He said, did you see this? And I said, no. <laughs> and like raced up to my computer and my, my colleague had seen it, thankfully, and, and was on it, Frederick Leidenmore. And so um, he spoke to, uh, you know, Jennifer Morgan and Christian Klein and to, to Bill McDermott uh, last night and, you know, sort of got the, uh, the scuttlebutt. But, um, you know, what's interesting is we had Bill McDermott at the enterprise session that we had last month. So we had a day long session devoted to the enterprise. And we had Bill McDermott there and, you know, talking to him on the stage, which Frederick did, it didn't seem like, um, you know, this was a man that was gonna be leaving in a month, but he obviously had probably telegraphed this already to the people inside Yesterday, yeah, well, it takes a lot of preparation. Although I looked up the data, fifty-two percent of Fortune 500 CEOs are fired. It doesn't matter what the press release says. They right. Almost always well, who knows? Fired. You know, his yeah. his his party line was ten years is enough, right? So he's yeah, been yeah. for ten years, and he said something like, you know, the the uh, experts say that you know after ten years you start to get stale. Well. There's well, a lot. And SAP's been undergoing a lot of changes. There's been, there's been the, you know, the, the turnover at the CTO level, which is critical for products and, uh, and there's other- There's been what, like four or five executives? Like yeah, there's been four or five executives that have left this year alone. So there's, there's yeah, clearly well, something going on, but, you know, whether we, you know- what Well, but well-run companies, if you look at like um, Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson, they blow up their company every 18 months on schedule because they say, otherwise you get too, you get too comfortable, right? You're not, you're, you're not rethinking how, what's the best way to do something right now. So that's supposed to be a good management strategy. Uh, but then of course the scuttlebutt is the uh, Qualtrics may not have been the, you know, worth $8 billion. Uh, and that, you know, I was just at TechEd in Barcelona and, you know, the developer audience is not, it's not resonating with them. I think it should, but it, it doesn't matter. So, you know, the question is, is, is that just one, one misstep too far? Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. There's a lot going on if you kind of pull back a little bit. I, I was just writing something actually before I, I got on the air with you guys. And a, a couple of things that I, that I discovered as I was kind of digging into this a little bit. One is the, you know, the executive exodus, which is, you know, kind of a sign that something's going on. The other is that last April, um, Elliott Management, um, bought a big stake, like $1.35 billion in the company. And Elliot usually shows up when there's blood in the water, you know? <laughs> and, and I mean, I took a look at their stock performance over the last five years, and it's, you know, it's it's pretty steady growth. There's like, you know, little dips, but it's well, not- I, I think it's executing well, actually. I, yeah. I like what they're doing with their products. Uh, yeah, so, it, but it's gonna, a lot of these developments, Qualtrics is gonna take forever to get their ROI back, you know? It's gonna be right. Right, and when when you when you when you look at um, you know who knows you know Elliot puts pressure on boards and CEOs and maybe Bill just didn't want to deal with that. I mean, I don't I don't have any information that suggests that. That's pure speculation on my part. But you know, Elliot um, does come in and make changes, and um, who knows if that was a factor. Um, you know, when you look at what he's done, you know, you, you, you have to look at the acquisitions, right? You know, and the Qualtrics was one, Concur was another, um, the Catalyst Cloud one. These are all, you know, multi-billion dollar acquisitions. So the question is, as you say, are they getting the return that they hope for on those, on those? And is the internal kind of focus really shifting to the cloud as they, as they need to be? And 
whatever happens, it's up to Jennifer and Christian now to kind of take the helm and move it forward. Ron, you also wrote about importance of trust and edge computing. Can you talk about uh, your most recent article, which was- Yeah, that was, uh, that was Satya. Satya Nadella, um, CEO of Microsoft, obviously, um, gave a big speech this week uh, at a government tech conference that Microsoft um, sponsored. And he talked about a couple of big things. And, and as you say, one was, was computing moving to the edge. And the idea that they're going to be, I think what he, he said, um, 50, billion. 50 billion devices by 2030, which is just an astonishing number. As he pointed out, you know, there are maybe a billion Windows computers out there, which is a huge number. <laughs> there are uh, 2 billion smartphones and, you know, 30 billion devices broadcasting is, is, is going to be a lot of data. And so, he obviously, you know, was talking about computing moving to the edge to deal with a lot of these use cases. And, he, but he didn't see it as like, you know, it's going to move to the edge and that's going to kill the cloud or something like that. He saw it as a kind of, yeah, working hand in glove in tandem. And that, and I think he's right, that, you know, you'll have, you know, computing that needs to be done at the edge um, done there. You know, you think the, the classic case is the self-driving car. Obviously, a self-driving car cannot come to a stop sign and send a question to the cloud. Do I need to stop? I mean, even if it's like milliseconds of latency, it's probably too much, right? And if there is, if there is like a significant latency, you're dead. <laughs> so, or at least cer certainly hurt. Yeah. So you don't want that. So that kind of, you know, heavy compute, you know, yeah. is going to be done at the edge. And then of course, all that information is going to be transferred mm -hmm. to the cloud where it will be processed and you know all the analytics will be done on that, the machine learning will be done on that. And so there's gonna be a lot of you know use cases where both are being used. So that was one. And the other thing was the idea of, of trust and computing. And this is again, I mean, it's something that Mark talks about a lot, you, Mark Benioff, and it, it, you know, it's just, it's, you have to have the trust of your end users. And whether you're a big company, a platform player like Microsoft, is what he said, or you're a, uh, you know, a, a provider, which the yeah. government is, you know, if you don't provide services that people feel are quality and their information is being preserved and not being uh, abused and not being, um, uh, you know, not secured, yeah. um, then, you know, it's hard to earn that trust back once it's gone. And he talked about it on three levels, privacy, security, and uh, he also included AI ethics in that and using AI in an ethical way. So, you know, they was, I thought it was a, an interesting speech. And, you know, it wasn't, it didn't really cover new ground per se. It's stuff that, you know, both he and, you know, Microsoft in general have been banging on for a couple of years, but um, um, it was, it was uh, you know, interesting to hear it in, you know, kind of in this context. Are you attending Constellation Connect Enterprise? In a couple of I will not be able to make it, unfortunately. Well, Diane uh, and I were looking to buy you a meal, so very sorry for that. I'm sorry to hear it too, but it was just like there was there was like a lot of planning and things didn't happen, and unfortunately, I won't be there. Sure, sure. Uh, Diane, last question goes to you. Last question. Well, so speaking of trust, Ron, um, uh, there was some blockchain news this week, um, uh, and uh, although some are saying that the blockchains uh, is uh, hitting the trough of disillusionment, yeah. uh, I, I'm still. I'm still bullish uh, long-term on the technology, yeah. uh, but apparently this, um, 
this uh, announcement will help utilities and energy companies. Uh, yeah, uh, from a company called Z. Maybe maybe prevent rolling blackouts in the middle of Silicon Valley. I, I don't know if it will prevent that, but uh, <laughs> so so the, the the I mean this is very complicated. But generally, what what this company has done is they've created um, a way to create a policy and then apply you know or enforce the policy on the blockchain. And what they found was when they started working with you know, these heavy utilities and they started to make some progress inside them, you know, utilities, energy companies, manufacturers, they had a very complex setup. So they might have, you know, it was just things spread out across a lot of different uh, locations. So what they did to solve that was they created a two, I guess, hierarchical blockchain is what they call it. So you have mm -hmm. a local chain where stuff gets done at the local level and you have a global chain that's the ultimate enforcer. And it's it's just it's to deal with when you know if you are out in a you know an oil rig in the middle of the ocean, there's yeah. a good chance that at some point you may disconnect with the with the global yeah. chain. You will continue to do whatever it is that you do, and then you know when you reconnect or you know even if there's just a bit of latency, yeah. when you reconnect, you know the global chain will enforce those rules and make sure that nothing happened on the chain. Well, um, you know, you were disconnected. That shouldn't yeah. blockchain in the field. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so it's really an interesting, I think, fascinating um, resolution to a problem, and it, it, it's 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 very different from how you would sort of think of traditional, uh, you know, digital ledgers in this way. But uh, it's a way to solve a, a, you know an actual problem in the field, and without very creative. Well, hopefully, you can tune in to next week's Disrupt TV, Ron. We have Sheila Warren, who's the head of blockchain technology at the World Economic forum and we're going to talk to Sheila about trends and use cases and business benefits and so hopefully we can uh, add to the, our uh, audience's knowledge base in terms of distributed ledgers. We're here with Ron Miller, techno enterprise technology reporter at TechCrunch, an avid Boston sports fan who's predicting the Pats will go 15 and 1 in the regular season. <laughs> I did not predict no, that. No, <laughs> I just want Ron to get hate tweets. <laughs> who's joining? Thank you, Ron, for being an exceptional uh, guest again. Look forward to speaking to you in the near future. Thank you. Okay, thanks, thanks guys. Ron. It was a pleasure Great. to be here. Thanks, Ron. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, um, Dion, next week we have Hans Lambert, Dean of Division of Continuing Education at Harvard University, who's going to be, he's an incredible trailblazer and an entrepreneur, startup founder, and he's, he's a fantastic thought leader. Sheila Warren, who's head of blockchain and distributed letter technologies at the World Economic Forum. And we have Philip Long, who's a special advisor to Arizona State University and a senior scholar who's actually implementing a distributed ledger framework at ASU where he's connecting students, faculty, administration, and potential employers around the ASU ecosystem. So as wow. that's gonna be a great show. Yeah, they can, it's, it's gonna be an exceptional show just like today. Thank you for subbing. You are our go-to guy. When I'm not here, when Ray's not here, and ultimately I think you're gonna become a try a co-host. Well, that's very kind of you, thanks, Paul. It's always a pleasure, and your hosting is, is bar none. Uh, I really appreciate it, really appreciate it. Coming from you means a lot. So thanks everyone for watching. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll see you episode 167 next week. Have a great weekend all, thank you very much. Take Bye. care, thanks, bye everyone. Bye.